When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy friends, Craig here. On this episode, we sit around and talk Malifaux 3rd Edition with three of our regular guests, Jamie Varney, Stephen Bynum, and James Doxey. We talk about how to get better as a player, where the game is now that it's released, and take questions from our listeners. There is amazing advice in this episode. You'll want to listen to it twice. Before we jump in, our friends at Gadzooks Gaming have a sweet offer for all of our U.S. and Canadian listeners. Now, Gadzooks Gaming has always been a big supporter of the third floor, as well as Malifaux and a ton of other games like Wild West Exodus, Dark Age, Frostgrave, and Legion. What makes it my favorite online retailer is the customer service and their amazing custom terrain and accessories. They are giving all of our North American listeners free shipping if you spend over $100 and use the promo code THIRDFLOOR, spelled out one word, T-H-I-R-D. Check them out at gadzooksgaming.com. All the details are in the show notes. The promo code is THIRDFLOOR. Now on to the episode. Well, Arcanists have three or four different units, which are basically a, a scraggly bloke with a mechanical limb. Why don't we make all of those one model now? There are several models that are standout models that are the most efficient at what they do for the points that you will see across a number of crews, for sure. Everything out there feels, you know, feels really good to play right now. So I, I suspect we'll see, uh, you know, we'll see plenty of, uh, you know, we'll see plenty of more things called broken before we get to a point that anything needs errata. I, I think right now we're in a really good space. Everything is broken in Malifaux Third Edition, which means nothing is broken really. And sometimes you will see people who build crews or build interactions that can do something really cute and gimmicky. And hey, that's really pretty. I want to pet it, but it doesn't score points. There are few things better than stepping away from the screens, unplugging and sitting around a table to do battle with your friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars brings you the latest strategies, tactics, and reviews on board games, card games, and miniature games like Malifaux. If you want useful information on the games you already play, or new insights on great games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today I've asked three friends of the show to come on to talk about Malifaux third edition, basic concepts, strategies, and approaches, and we have a lot to cover. So the guests today are James Doxey, Stephen Bynum, and Jamie Varney. Now all three of them have been on the pod before, and if you have not listened to their deep dive episodes, you should go back and check them out. So James, uh, Stephen, Jamie, welcome to the third floor. Thank you for having us. Hello. Awesome. So 
guys, what I want to talk about are some really interesting uh, things. Um, and so I'm going to, we're going to take some questions from the audience. We're also going to, um, I'm going to throw some questions out to you. But the one thing that, um, I want us to really focus on is really kind of where the game is right now. Um, so we're not going to really dig into specific masters and factions or keywords. I just want to get a sense, you know, from all of the play that you guys have gotten all throughout the beta. And now that we're in full release, let's, uh, let's talk about the state of the game. Um, so I start with you, James. Um, we've got a new edition. Every model changed from second edition. The rules changed from second edition. And even people that have been playing Malifaux for a very long time are running into, uh, you know, crews that they've never really seen before. I mean, if you've played against Jack Daw before, it's not the same as playing against Jack Daw in third. So I want to get an idea from you guys. Um, and with you first, James, you know, when you are about to start a new game, uh, let's say at a first round of a tournament and there's a new keyword that you haven't played against on the other side, you know, what do you do? So, I mean, the first thing, the first thing to understand is what you're bringing. Um, and when you're, when you're looking at what you're bringing, you'll, you'll hopefully you've played a few games with it already and you kind of know its strengths and weaknesses. So what you're looking at is, okay, well, what's good against me and what do I need to mitigate? So I will tend to, I'll tend to look at that. So for example, uh, if Karis is weak to condition removal, you sort of ask, you know, you start asking questions, you know, you know do they have any condition removal? Um, you get a sense of, you know, some generic questions to ask. You look at, uh, you know, can it remove scheme markers, that sort of thing. Yeah, so, I mean, specifically when I come up against a crew I've never seen before, there's a few, like, quick questions I think I go through with the opponent. I ask what the keyword ability is for the crew that I'm going to be playing against. Um, you can always ask someone like a rough overview of what something does. And I think you can build quite a big picture from something for asking from the card for the master and the totem. Yeah. And I would, I would just add to that as well. When you, when you're doing that, um, if you've got familiarity with second edition, most things tend to play down a similar vector. They may do it differently, but you know, Rasputin is still standing off and shooting at you. Um, Lady Justice is still running in with a giant sword. So for a lot of the masters, the Although the mechanics may have changed, you can still get a good sense of the play style as well. And, and I second what Jamie says around reading uh, reading sets of cards. And I think one thing James said is really key there, and it's getting after the concept of can I categorize the crew? How does this type of crew I'm playing against function? And therefore, going back to knowing your own crew, how do you play against that type of crew, whether it's melee, shooting, control, disruption, etc.? Um, Jamie also hit on a key one also, and that's what are those unifying rules or abilities that once you grasp, you know will apply to almost every model in that crew or in the faction you're playing against in that keyword. And then also, are there any specific things that break or circumvent basic rules of the game that you need to know or understand up front um, that's going to adjust how you think or how you approach a game? Yeah, no, I agree with everything you guys just said. I think, um, you know, obviously <laughs> knowing your own stuff is key, but, um, and I don't know what you, what you guys have felt, but the, the one thing that I've noticed now that I've gotten, you know, more than one game under my belt, um, I've also noticed it's been really helpful that, um, allure is allure and, you know, these abilities are the same across all the cards. Have you guys felt that? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. And for me, part of that goes back into the categorization of models. When you're looking at that crew, if you can put each of their models into buckets, 
schemer, disruptor, baiter, shooter, supporter, or whatever labels you use or whatever buckets you want to put them in, then even if you can't remember everything about it, conceptually, you'll understand what the role of that model does and what you can expect from it in terms of the game. And so here's something that I think really kind of ties to it. Um, and it's something that I figured out, you know, when I first started playing Malifaux and I actually got some really good coaching on it um, from some good players uh, a couple of years ago. And that's the art of asking the question. Um, so you're, let's say, uh, you know, your fourth activation, it's a key turn. And, um, you know, you're trying to figure out if I, you know, if I get my, you know, Tony out here at the middle of the table, is is that going to be a dumb play? And one of the key things that I was taught was, you know, it's very important how you ask the question. So, Jamie, you know, it seems kind of generic, but I think you know where I'm headed. You know, what kind of, how do you ask the question to get the right answers that are going to allow you to make the right decision? Um, I, I, part of it comes down to what you need to know, but it's going to be that a lot of the questions you're going to need to ask are going to be, generic and, and similar to M2E, be stuff like clarifying how many cards they've got in their hand, clarifying what activated models they've got or what models they've got left to activate, so you're both on the same page with that. Um, threat ranges is a great one to ask, um, and when you're, t- when you're asking threat ranges, it's important that you're both on the same page as to whether we're talking about their charge range or their charge plus their engage range. Because if you mix that up and you think you're talking about one and they think you're asking about the other, you can put yourself in a really bad position. Yeah, and, and there's probably an underlying, I agree with all that, and there's probably an underlying um, thing that maybe people who are new to Malifaux need to understand that's probably quite different to some other war games, which is that in Malifaux, it is not my job to know all of your rules backwards. Um, and it's important that when to understand that when in Malifaux, you're not allowed to obscure information or hide information. If your opponent is asking you something, you have to open, ask fully, you know, so you have to answer, you know, openly and honestly and fully. So provided you're ans- asking questions which are open of your opponent, like, does this model have any defensive abilities I need to be aware of um, prior to attacking it? They can't sort of legalese an answer. They can't sort of go, uh, you know, they've got to answer that question, you know, in an open and full way. Absolutely. And another thing that you can ask and that's useful to ask is if you're relying on a certain ability or you're relying on a certain defensive tech is to ask, does this model have any way to ignore this? So does this model have any way to do irreducible damage? Does this model have a way to ignore my defensive trigger? Or do you have a way to stop this trigger working? Um, obviously, it's it's things like that that are going to be specific to your crew and the plan, your putting together but there's a there's an art to that in asking the right questions without giving away your plan if it might be an activation or two ahead and by the same token if it's something that's not that far in advance and you're not really familiar with that keyword then just be pretty open about what your objective is like in your example of using tony you know if you're putting tony somewhere and she is going to accomplish something specific then do you have something that can do x or that can stop me from doing something. The more direct you are, sometimes that can help get around some of those things. Um, I, I think the biggest piece, though, is is trying to recognize what their overall approach is, what the overall style um, that they're going after is, and then that'll help you shape your questions, just like understanding what their crew and its abilities are. Definitely. And one one more thing I'd add to that is that 
a, a really, really good thing to get in the practice of doing, which is is partly a question and partly a statement and agreement between you and your opponent, is when you're doing something and you're measuring something out, clarify and agree it with your opponent. Cool, I've put this model here. It's within six inches of this model, three inches of this model, or it's engaging this model or not engaging this model. Clarify that with your opponent. Make sure you're both agreed on it before you move on. Don't just assume. Yeah, declaring intentions are huge. Yeah, that, that's absolutely a point. And, and, you know, you can be, you can go quite a, a long way in declaring intentions. So certainly, you know, relatively late in the turn, um, you can kind of go, um, you know, look, is there any way you can get to this bomb marker that's down? Or, you know, can I, I don't think there's a way you can get to this bomb marker. Can you confirm that? Um, and those are sorts of things you can do, you know, and it, it saves you having to, you know, it's a time saver because it saves you having to measure, you know, you know, huge numbers of variables out. If you can both sort of agree a position, um, it helps the game move on more smoothly um, across all of you. So yeah, asking and having that communication about what is possible at any given moment is vital. Yeah, and to, and to build off of that, James, and to tie into what you were talking about with, with threat ranges, Jamie, uh, one of the things that I find myself asking all the time is, I'll say, is there any way for the captain to get here in one activation? or by the end of this turn. Um, and because what will often happen is you'll talk about the threat range of a model, but you're not aware that there's three other models that are going to push them six inches first. Um, so I think that, you know, to, to, you know, what James and really Steve hinted at too, it's all open information. Um, and this isn't a gotcha game. This is a game where the people making the best decisions are supposed to win the game, not the people that, you know, didn't ask the right questions or didn't know what was on the other person's card. Yeah, I think you're spot on there, Craig. And to me, some of that also comes down to that kind of standard checklist of questions that you might go through at the start of the game when you're looking at a crew you're not familiar with of what models break basic rules of the game, what models have movement abilities, what models have obeys. I mean, there's any number of things that can be on your standard checklist, if you will, that you can look at to give you a better understanding of what that crew's capable of. And then that'll help inform your understanding of what they can do in each situation, each turn, and each position by position as you go through the game. Yeah, and I think, you know, the one last thing I think on this topic that I'll bring up too is that, you know, Pre-game is not the only time that you have to ask these questions. Um, so what I find myself doing now in M3E is I'll, I'll ask uh, some of those top level high questions like Steve, you, you were talking about just to get a feel for it. But, you know, mid game, you know, I'm being very specific and asking questions like, you know, what kind of defensive tech does this person have? What does it ignore? So I completely agree with what everybody said. Um, so guys, we had uh, one of our listeners uh, send in a question. So uh, let's see what Chris had to say. Do you have a set number of activations that you never want to go below when you're hiring a crew? So Steve, how about you? Is there a, is there a, like a, a floor uh, that you were not willing to go below when you're talking about how many people you, how many uh, models you hire? I really don't have a hard and fast rule. On average, between seven to nine models is roughly the composition of the crews I tend to run. This changes based on how a crew functions, what tools it requires, and what the pool requires for me to score. This seems pretty standard with most of my opponents, too, and in part kind of drives my choices in the models I take. And I'm probably going to give a quite different answer, which is... Um, I think that I think for me, um, eight in any game except for seven in reckoning. I think those are probably where my flaws are, um, which tends to give me enough activations, but not being out activated. Um, I could be in the minority on that. 
Yeah. It, well, let, let's figure, I want to understand why, what your, th- do you think that's a layover from M2E for you and you just haven't shook it yet? No, I, I think for me, it's, um, I think for me, it, it's about um, having the having the flexibility and having enough models. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I think what I tend to find is if you if you go super light on models, if you go, um, you know, go lower than seven in most games, um, you don't have enough AP to complete the majority of the objectives. Um, and I, I think there is sort of there is a level below which you, you shouldn't go. And I, I think for me. Yeah, seven reckoning tends to be lower uh, or can be lower because you need, you often need to make sure you're sort of you're representing a small footprint for those objectives. Plus, having the initiative, having those pass tokens, is actually probably more useful in reckoning than than in some other other games. Yeah, for me, I mean, what what you guys have said is is correct. But I mean, I, I generally sit about nine models in most of my games, and that's um, that's purely because I put much less value in soul stones in this edition, which is strange. But I think it's just because I don't get any for free. But that's a different conversation. Um, but I think with with the advent of pass tokens, it's definitely less of an, an issue when you take uh, less models than your opponent because you do have that ability, especially in the early turns, to pass activations um, to make sure that you're not being out activated. Yeah, I'll agree with that. The The one caution I would give is that even with pass tokens, you don't want to be too many activations below your opponent. A pass token may let you hold a key model for a better time to activate it, but it doesn't let you do all the additional things that actions and models will let you do that are often required to score and win the game. So just out of curiosity, uh, Jamie, what is what is the lowest number of model counts you've played so far in 3E? Uh, I think eight is actually the lowest I've played with. How about you, Steve? I've played a number with seven. Um, I think I may have had one with six, but it was a really odd game. Um, Typically, though, even if I'm going that low as seven, that's in one of the rare occasions I'm playing Double Master, which I know our friends across the pond are apt to do. Yeah, and James, have you even tried going below eight? Uh, yeah, I, I've tried. I, you know, I, I do. You know, I do. I do dip to seven. Um, uh, you know, particularly for things like reckoning. Um, and and yeah, you know, it, it's not impossible. I think as a um, as a floor limit, what I'm what I'm probably saying is I don't think these sort of super elite crews are uh, sort of are the way to go. Um, and I'd certainly be very cautious about going. Uh, you know, going too low on models. Well, so James, in kind of a similar vein, then, um, you know, if you, if we kind of bucket models to say, you know, nine stone, eight, nine stones or higher, and then seven stones and lower, um, generally, how many of the larger, you know, stone models are you bringing in? Or is it just very too much? It varies quite significantly crew to crew. Probably, I think it's probably too eight to 10 models at least um, in my average crew, um, I would say. Um, but it does vary master to master. And I'm conscious I'm speaking very much from an arcanist perspective and it will vary faction to faction as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I think when you're, I could t- tell you two different masters in the Reza faction and one of them would have a completely different answer to the other. For K- Kirai, for example, I like to hire lots of low cost models and summon big models in. Um, whereas Molly, I tend to start with bigger models, um, and then the Forgotten Marshal potentially can bring some smaller ones in. Yeah, that makes sense. That it would be really not as much personal style as much as keyword dependent. 
Yeah. All right, guys. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a quick break. And when we get back from the break, I want to talk about kind of the general approach to a pool. Uh, so when you're about to play a game and you see what the strat and scheme pool is, I want to talk about what goes through your brain at that time. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. With 3rd Edition Malifaux released, it's time for you to get a new mat with new deployment zones. We've tried every mat in the business and nobody has better quality and selection than Mats by Mars. They're waterproof and they roll and unroll easily and they're even wet erase Marco compatible. They offer over 35 designs and let you add M3E overlays for making deployment and positioning a breeze. Check them out at matsbymars.com. They are offering a sweet discount for our listeners. After you found the perfect mat, use the promo code THIRDFLOOR to get 10% off your entire order. If you really want to support us in the notes of your order, request that our logo be put in the corner of your mat. It's the only way to make the best mat in the business even cooler. Again, that's Matt by Mars. Use the promo code THIRDFLOOR to get a 10% discount. Details are in the show notes. Okay, so you guys... Um, you know, you're, you're getting ready to sit down and play a casual game. And, you know, a lot of times for tournaments, we get the pools, strats and schemes beforehand, which I personally love because I'll obsess over a crew adding models and moving, removing models and switching masters for weeks before a tournament starts. But let's just say that you're, you know, casual game, you're across this, across from each other. And Steve, I want to get an idea that once you flip for the strat and the scheme pool, um, you know, how do you dissect that? that strat and scheme pool to make the decisions behind, you know, what keywords you're going to bring. Right. Um, so obviously the starting point, of course, is the strategy. The first thing I'm looking at is how does the strategy change or how does my crew change based on the deployment zone that's selected as well? For me, the deployment is equally important almost to the strategy itself because the degree of capability you need in certain areas change considerably as your deployment zones change. The second thing I'm looking at is what pairs well with the strategy, because I'm really looking for efficiency. What can I do with the least amount of effort or activations or actions while I'm doing the other things required to score the strategy, score the other scheme, and shut down my opponent? Yeah, that's a really good summary of picking your strat. And I think that just goes into then once you've used that to look at your strat and how you're building everything, the the schemes then go from there. If you look at your strat and what you're playing, your schemes can then start to come from where are you going to be on the board? If we're looking at something like plant explosives or corrupted idols, you're wanting to be over the other side of the board and turf war, to be fair. And that can dictate your schemes that you're wanting to take. Um, also what kind of game if you're playing Reckoning so do you really want that take prisoner do you really want to deliver a message are you going to want to keep these models alive to be able to do these schemes yeah so I would and I, I jump off from both of those points and I think, I think that they're really um, you know they're really good points I think the um, the key that the, the deployment and strategy tend to tend to generate is they'll tend to dictate the path of movement around the board so it'll tend to say, okay, we're playing this game. Um, you know, you're gonna, we're gonna need to go broadly from this position to this position, and that'll really inform the movement, which probably informs everything else. Um, and I, I think the the interesting one in that often is reckoning, um, where you've got to sometimes figure out how to, you know, are you going to want to stand off or go to the opponent, or how can you force the opponent to come to you? 
Yeah, I think James is spot on when he talks about the movement there because that's going to change drastically for each of these schemes based on the different deployment. And when I'm looking to pair up schemes that work well with a given strategy, like Jamie mentioned, if you're on idles, then things like Outflake, um, where you're already in that position, is a good example. But also the feasibility of a lot of the schemes change drastically based on the changes in deployment zone as well. And I think you've got to consider that aspect of it too. Not just is this good um, a good pair for the strategy, but can I even accomplish this scheme with this type of deployment and what changes will that force in how I approach the game? No, absolutely. And, you know, the likes of um, breakthrough change dramatically depending on the deployment type, um, just as you were saying. I think the thing for me as well is is looking at whether your schemes sort of contrast or complement your strategy. So um, if you're going to be playing... Um, you're going to be playing a strategy that's going to bring you naturally into the center board in conflict. You might want to look for outflank as, as sort of to contrast that because you can take models away where they're not necessarily going to be, you know, immediately in conflict with the opponent. Similarly, um, and sort of contrast what you're what the bulk of the resource is trying to do, and kind of sneak around the side and do outflank. Whereas some, you know, in a similar sort of reckoning game where you're going to go in the middle and fight, you may want to take deliver a message because you're not confident in killing your opponent's master, but you know they're going to be in the middle. Um, and kind of figuring out, okay, is this a scheme I'm taking because I can sneak off and do it unchallenged, or is this one I'm taking because it'll I'll be able to achieve it while I'm doing the other things that I'm doing, and that informs what you so what you target in your hiring um, to go. Okay, well, I'm, I'm either going to need a specialist for this, or I can work this into the crew I'm already hiring. Absolutely. And to, to go backwards a little bit onto what Steve was uh, talking about, when you're looking at what schemes you can actually achieve, you, you're going to need to take into consideration the crew that's been put in front of you, because obviously you're picking your schemes once you've revealed your crews. And there's certain things, to give an example of Colette, where actually Colette can spend every moment that she is not activating, not on the board. So that takes things out of the game. It takes potentially assassinate out of the game, take prisoner, deliver a message, not take prisoner, sorry, but deliver a message out of this uh, pool. And you need to know if you're picking specific models for things, you need to do research on those models and ask to see the card and check that you're not actually picking a scheme that you're not going to be able to do. Yeah, no question about that. And there's some luck in there as well, isn't there? You know, you can take... Um, take prisoner on a model that's you know that, that should be coming at you, and then it, it decides to go do something else at random. Um, and it's no, noticing where you're going to get, you know, where you're taking a risk, um, in, you know, on, on your opponent playing something. For example, you know, take prisoner or vendetta. Um, you know, just that, just not lining up, um, and also sort of. You don't necessarily need to take a scheme going. Can I get all of these points? But also, you can look at okay, I'm going to take this scheme, and I know I'm going to get one point for it. And that's enough. Um, so that, that's, that's something to certainly consider as you're going in and picking your schemes. The, the other thing I would add there, and I mentioned it earlier, um, is the efficiency piece. Sometimes you'll be looking at a, at a pool or examining the schemes and your crew or the crew that you believe you're going to hire may have the ability to do more than two of those so that you're really picking of what's my preference here. Then really is there a difference in efficiency between those is there a scheme that all you have to do is show up for and you can score like outflank where if I'm playing idols, I'm already going to have models in those positions anyway. So just by the nature of being there to do the other things I need to, I can incidentally score the scheme. Or if I'm looking at two, 
is there a difference in the amount of effort? Say, for example, search the ruins and harness the ley line. They're both marker-based schemes. You've got to put markers down. The difference is with harness the ley line, it has to be on the center line, and it's three markers for the first point, three for the second, whereas search on a given board may provide you more flexibility because it's less markers for the first point, and you've got more options on where you can place them. I'm not saying I'd always take search over harness, but that's just an example of looking at the board, the train, the enemy crew, and then saying which of these are more feasible and then which of these is it more efficient for me to do that allows me to dedicate more actions to accomplishing other things. So here's a question for you guys. You know, I think at first we tend to think about things um, when we see a pool, we say, you know, what is what is the best master to, to score, you know, eight points in this pool? And, you know, as you um, you know, you know what the other master is, you know, you start building your crew, thinking about scoring and things like that. Um, James, how often are you thinking about, um, denial? Um, how often are you picking, um, you know, a, a master for a pool or, or, you know, making crew selections in that pool because you know, it's going to help to, you know, deny, uh, some of the points. Um, I, I think it, I think it's a reasonable consideration. It, it's something probably it is very much secondary to, to getting my own points. But you know, a point denied is the same as a point one, right? It's a point of VP difference either way. Um, I think certainly I, I, I look at that um, with choices, particularly in Arcanist. We've got a lot of scheme marker removal in the right objective set. So where you see a very you know, heavy scheme marker pull, um, it, it's often interesting to sort of go in there and force that. Um, similarly, you, I also tend to look at it from the other way. It's like, well, what points can't I stop? Um, and I kind of, I'm not afraid to let points go if it's go, okay, right. I'm, I'm you know, I'm not going to be able to stop my opponent getting deliver a message if they've taken it in this game because I've taken a combat master, right? So I, I think that's a, that's another, another key one sort of what do you fight for and what, what do you let go? Um, and where can you deny? Yeah, I agree with that completely. I believe denial is absolutely critical to good play, especially when you're talking about the strategy. Because oftentimes, if you're able to deny a point of strategy, that's a point that they can't recover. So once you have denied them a point on something like idols or turf war, et cetera, where you're taking away a turn that they could score that, you've just capped them at a lower total. With schemes, you can always score later. You can get that first point, you know, turns two through four, and then that last point into game. But if you can deny strategy points, it's absolutely critical in my opinion. The The one place I would differ with James on, on the last question is, when I'm looking at schemes, I am always playing for eight. Because in my opinion, the way I look at it, if you're selecting a scheme based on just scoring one point, then you're automatically handicapping yourself from the beginning, making it that much easier for the opponent to limit you and for them to get the points necessary to either tie or beat you as well. I think it's completely fair. And I think probably the, the inflection I would put on it, and, and you're right, is there are some pools where um, you can look at an objective set and go, actually, I don't need all eight or um, I'm not pos- you know, possibly going to be get all eight. So yeah, as a preference, you know, you're, you're absolutely right there, Steve. And, and the point around denying strategy is, you know, is really great. Um, you know, you, like you say, capping your opponent with a point they cannot recover is, uh, you know, is really, really strong. Well, and, and James, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, and Steve, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on here is, you know, 
so you, let's say you're let's say it's a crappy pool right um and maybe because of the your faction you know you're not crazy about it um or maybe once the you know you thought you were going to be in good shape and then you see the other crew um and the choices that were made there and now you're really not sure i mean what's better steve to to pick a scheme that you know for a fact you can get a point on or a scheme that you're feeling like you got about a 40 percent chance to get both points that, that's really a tough call, and it probably comes down to personal preference. You know, with most things in life, I am a, a guarantee is worth way more than a promise type of guy. Um, fortunately, the way they designed M3E, since you know the the pool up front before you select your keyword and crew, um, and additionally, you know what master your opponent is playing before you select the remainder of your crew, the rest of your crew, there aren't too many pools out there as drastically different as each individual scheme is, where you're going to have a pool in front of you that you're not going to be able to pick a couple of those schemes and build an appropriate crew that nine times out of 10 can score those schemes if you dedicate the actions to do it. I think one of the big problems, though, is a lot of times players get in that situation where they lose sight or they lose focus of what the objectives they have to accomplish is. And that's why they end up not scoring something, in spe- you know, uh, rather than just their inability to do so. Not always the case, but sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to build on that, I think obviously all the best laid plans only – uh, last until you actually get on the battlefield but if you're looking at a game and there's uh, not two schemes that you're confident you can score both points on then you need to rewind and go back to crew building because you've done something wrong at the beginning there yeah and Steve <laughs> if I were to pick one thing that prevents me from being a, uh, a, a truly you know, top table guy, it is that loss of focus and I'm getting better at it. And I think I'm playing more to get better at it. And I'm not the only guy, um, out there that this happens to where I, I get eat and it's not losing focus. Like I start thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow. What'll happen is, is, you know, an interaction will happen that either went away. I didn't expect it or came from nowhere for me and throws me off. And I'll, you know, forget what the pool is and I'll just act as a reaction to that. Well, you know, absolutely, Craig. And Malifaux is a really complex game, which is the beauty of it, with so many variables. And anytime a player is looking at, you know, how do I improve or how do I become more competitive or whatever, there's so many things you can never focus on all of them. So what I would encourage you to do is just in every game, don't try to do it all but identify the one or two things in this game up front that you want to remember or work on and that you often tend to forget. Make those the focus of the game and then continue to focus on those one or two things until they become second nature and then pick something else to work on as well. I think I'm going to set you guys up as kind of my support group. Uh, I mean, like my phone of friends. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I think once you get to the, once you're looking at like the top, top end of uh, tournament play, actually a massive part of the game is putting the pressure on where your opponent wasn't expecting it and forcing them into having to consider these bad decisions, which, which throw them off the actual game that they were trying to play. And and you just, you, you put them in a position where actually they're forgetting that, oh, they would move this model here to do this, or they needed to score this point this way. Um, and that that's all part of the the 
the puzzle that is Malifaux. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, it, it's something very unique to Malifaux um, because um, as someone who's played a good bit of Guild Ball, um, I didn't have that problem in Guild Ball. Um, and and I, I talk about it as being a problem, but to Steve's point, it's what, it's what I love about this game is that there's no there's no paved road to victory in this game. It is activation to activation. Things are changing and you have got to adjust. And it's what makes this game hard for me. And it's why I love it. I think the other thing you have to do, Craig, also is you've got to work on your English accent. Because when you consider <laughs> two thirds of your guests on here speak with it and they're the competitive end of the scale, then, you know, maybe that's an indicator of success as well. <laughs> <laughs> says the guy with the southern draw <laughs> in my case it's all deception when i show up in a straw hat and overalls they automatically discount any ability i'm gonna have and that helps me get through that's funny that's funny all right so let's let's kind of roll in to talk a little bit more about competitive play um, I think that, um, you know, in conversations that I've had with all three of you guys, both, you know, on the podcast and offline, um, you know, a casual game's a casual game, but, um, you know, competitive play is its own type of thing. And I know, um, from what, from the conversations and, uh, I've been having that, uh, it seems to me that the trend is pretty pretty well set in the UK not to allow master hiring. And um, James was telling me a little bit earlier that the Scottish GT isn't going to allow unreleased models on the table. And uh, here in the US, we're um, not doing dead man's hand here at the in North Carolina. Um, so, Jamie, kind of what is your thoughts about you know, kind of like these three things? Uh, so let's let's start off with hiring masters and that being allowed in competitive play. <laughs> well, anyone that listened to the Albus episode will know my uh, dislike for hiring masters in competitive play. I think it's a really, really cool mechanic. Um, I think it's it's nice to allow interesting crews to be played. But personally, I think it is not balanced for competitive play. But more than that, I think it will lead to a really stagnant meta. Because if I look at factions, I can point to one, maybe two masters that are sublime second master choices uh if i use rezas for an example kirai is an excellent second master and why would i not take her in so many situations and that's where the the, the tournaments and the top end of the tournaments then just become reza crews with the master they declared plus kirai or neverborn crews with the master they declare plus serada etc etc and on top of that it just breaks the in my opinion the, some of the best things about m3 uh, where we're looking at more themed crews based around keywords where actually that's not happening because we're hiring a second master who isn't thematic with that crew and doesn't have the synergies but is just a really strong independent piece and similarly when you're looking at declaring a master up front um, and that allows you to build to it. Well, actually, they can throw a complete spanner in the works by putting someone like Colette in, who you need a quite a specific toolbox to deal with Colette. And if you don't know she's coming, that's really going to hurt you. Yeah, and you know, I think when when you had the designer episode, Craig, I, I think the, the developer whose name I've shockingly forgotten said this was never intended to be a competitive uh, choice. Yeah, Matt. Matt, there we go. Apologies, Matt. Um, and uh, that's my... Uh, 
that's my chance of ever getting a play just again ruined right there. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, um, you know, I think Matt said, you know, this, this was never designed to be a competitive choice. And I think what we've, we've probably found um, in, you know, probably a dozen or more events in the UK is that there's half a dozen events in the UK is, is, is it is. And, and for the reasons Jamie outlined, you know, I've messed about with a bit more anarchist now. And there's just, you know, it tends to be when, when, when you're bringing two masters, one of you isn't having fun. Um, and, and, and I think that's, it doesn't feel fun. It, 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 as Jamie says, it, it seems to stagnate the meta and it seems to, um, uh, you know, it, it seems to have this, uh, this sort of run counter to the idea in M3 that we're going to have more themed crews. Yeah. I'll, I'll be the, the voice of disagreement and you know, I acknowledge their points, um, that it could be an issue that there's definitely some combinations, and some masters out there that maybe they would be that almost always take choice. Uh, but I approach this from the position of until it's been demonstrated that's, that it's an issue, I want the freedom to do it. I mean, crew hiring is about trade-offs regardless of whether you're hiring second masters, whether you're hiring an elite crew, whether you're hiring you know a much larger, less elite crew. I mean, the uniqueness of crew building is part of the game. I mean, in M2E, Every crew wasn't the same, you know. Even after uh, after Jamie did his thing with with Nico prior to the nerf across the pond, you didn't show up to tournaments, and every person there wasn't playing Jamie's Nico crew. Um, I think there's enough uniqueness to the game and to the crew building process that sure there are some models you're going to see more than others, and that's true whether it's masters or just extremely good versatile or maybe even out of keyword hires for certain crews but i like it as an option i think it's something new it's really interesting uh, my position would be let the community run with it you know and then six months down the road or a year down the road you go back and you reevaluate and if it truly was a problem and counters weren't developed and people didn't figure out how to play against different combinations of masters then at that point deal with it but until it's been demonstrated to be a problem, I don't see the need to take it away at the beginning. And and I would just say, I think I was where you were three, four months ago um, and having played around with it a bit more and sort of seen it in action on both sides of the table. I think I probably, I think I've come from where you are to where I am now, Steve. Um, and that's, you know, it may be, and I'm very conscious that we, um, we probably the US and the UK do have very different do seem to have very different matters. Um, I, I'm sure you know a historian or a psychologist could have a field day with with, with that that topic alone. <laughs> um, but we do seem to develop as matters in a, in, a, in, a, in a somewhat different direction. So it may be you know maybe you end up in in a, in a different place. Um, but I sort of think. And we have quite a hot house meta because we're in, you know, geographically a lot, a lot closer. Um, potentially, we've got there in, in sort of three to four months. But I feel like we've given it a good run, um, and, and I, I guess sort of it. Um, I, I think I, I'm, I'm sort of a bit further down the line on that. The only other point I'll, I'll make before I let Jamie come in is, I think there is a danger as well from a narrative perspective, from a you know to bring politics into it um, that. It becomes the only conversation around balance and around competitive mm. play, and I, I think that's my my other worry is that if we actually, I think it was never designed to be competitive. I think we're far enough in, or we feel far enough in in the UK to say actually this is, you know, this isn't taking the game in a fun direction at a time when it really needs to be fun and drawing people in. 
Um, and, and I'll come back to say, you know, I, I've never seen when there's two masters on the board, new player certainly is having fun and, and, and even experienced players, like it feels like they're not. Other people have other opinions. I think, you know, it might be best to be locked out at this stage before it ruins anyone's hobby. Although, you know, you know, your mileage will certainly vary. Yeah, I mean, you covered off most of what I was going to say anyway, but I, I, I agree. I, I feel we've had loads of examples of it, and it is, I guess, because we're we're closer together as a community, and we seem to have had quite a few events go off where a lot of the key members of the community have been already. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, my my ultimate concern from it is is at that top end tournament play where it will just be the same options over and over again, and I think those masters that are excellent second master choices are better than any combination of 16 stones of models that you could put into that crew and and it's just going to cause the the situation where as james said if you are playing at that top end of the tournament you need to be using that option to compete yeah and i would just say as well a huge part of it is the you know the master totem interactions because often so i i you know master higher mei fang at 16 i can bring her totem in for three which is a significant model and so i'm actually spending 19 stones on two models, a master and a totem, a totem which sets the master up very nicely and has condition removal attached to it. So I'm not actually losing anything out there. There are, there are plenty of combinations where you don't actually lose anything because when you average the master and the totem out, you don't lose activations as a result. And there are some real no kind of no-brainer choices out there, um, which, which is, is partly why you know, I've come to the conclusion I've come to, although, uh, you know, like I say, other people and other metas will, will come to their own. Yeah, and I can understand James's point there and the, the position that, that they're taking across the pond. Um, I've done some of the same things myself, like with Karis and Eternal Flame, even though you're not getting a significant bottle there by bringing both of those into a Sandeep crew um, and doing some pretty ugly things with it. Um, I, I guess my only perspective is, you know, I hate having aspects of a game that are built in that, you know, it seems like time was put into development. Maybe not enough, maybe not, you know, the level of playtesting that would have been required to properly balance uh, dual master hires. But I don't I don't like having aspects of the game that are there that are really neat, um, can make some really cool options and then saying, but hey, you're not allowed to do this. I, I'd almost rather at that point that they weren't even included in the base rules. And that was kind of my view of Dead Man's Hand. I know that was a bone to the people that already had the models. And there were a number of those models that I already had myself. But I would almost rather just have the devs put their time into making things that I can use um, instead of using it on things that I'm, I'm then not able to play in, you know, any number of games that I play. Yeah. And I, I'm normally a, a, you know, a dove when it comes to these sorts of things. I'd, I'd, rather, um, I'd, I'd rather wait and see. So, you know, you know I agree with you there, Steve. I, I think we've, you know, Say, so, okay, so I feel far enough in to have made that conclusion. With you, uh, you know, with Dead Man's Hand, I think there's an interesting window, which is probably closing fairly rapidly now, um, where Dead Man's Hand should be allowed um, just because people have the models. But like you, I would have rather they'd have said, actually, these models are gone for now um, and they may come back later, particularly as, you know, a lot of the models that are gone actually would make perfectly reasonable proxies for something else. I mean, you could always rebase Lilith. 50 mil and call you know and call a Nakima you could always play Ramos as Hoffman um in, in an Arcanist crew so I don't actually you know I, I think they, they could have just said actually you know forget Dead Man's Hand we'll make them 
appropriate legal proxies for other models and you know you no one's lost any models you know and, that, and this is someone who you know mained ramos in in m2e ramos has been my master from first edition to second edition and i'm i'm making a point of principle i'm not picking him up in dmh i've not played him i've not read his rules uh, he's not dropping on the table for me he's on my on my shelf waiting for that time when he breaks out of jail and makes a triumphant return <laughs> Yeah, preach for uh, Nico as well, mate. Preach for Nico. Um, but yeah, to, but, uh, to just swing back around, I think I don't really like to use them as an example, but if we look at the journey that Age of Sigmar has been on, when actually it first came out and uh, they sort of put two fingers up to balance and just went, people will play the game in a fair way because that's what people want to do and they let you sort of more or less do anything you want and that wasn't popular. And actually what they did then was built a set of rules where the game was more restricted for competitive play, but then you had the option when you weren't playing competitively to do these uh, stranger and more off-the-wall things. And actually the game has never been bigger and it is it is booming at the moment. And I don't think it would be a bad thing for Malifaux to go, cool, well actually this is a cool option and we want people to be able to do it. Is it right for competitive play? No, probably not. So let's, let's not have that in competitive play because actually we've got so many options across every faction that that the need to play around them with the options of second masters and the combinations they bring, I don't feel is necessary at all. Yeah. And I can agree with that point of view. The one thing I would say is, and you know, obviously I'm not part of the staff. I don't, I don't, you know, get any input to their process, but if that's the intent and if that's the approach they're wanting to take, then to me, make a section that says optional, you know, and put that crap in it and, you know, run with it. But just clearly say up front, hey, you know, in the rules, this is optional stuff. If you want to do X, you can do X, you know, and then people know from the beginning, all right, here you go, especially like new players coming into a game, they're going to read a set of rules and then that's what they're going to expect when they go to participate in an event or something else, you know, so if you can't get that if it's not clear and apparent reading the rules that, hey, this is not intended to be part of quote-unquote normal gameplay or competitive gameplay, um, then you're, you're almost creating that kind of false perception up front would be my only reservation there. Yeah, I agree. And I think it just comes down to this, I think, in, in gaining grounds we trust, I guess, um, where, I mean, my hope for it is that, that dual masters will will be outlawed in gaining grounds. And that's just part of actually when we're, we as the experienced players or the henchmen or, or wherever you stand in your communities, uh, introducing people to the game and actually saying, cool, well, look, this is a tournament. We were already having to say to them, this is gaining grounds. You're going to, you're going to need this. This is, this is what we use to supplement tournaments. Um, and then if the, if the rules changes in there, then that's, that's part of that. And that's actually cool. This is, this is the game. And then this is, if you're playing the game at tournaments on a competitive level, what you're going to need to do that. Yeah. And I'm completely good with that approach as well. You know, in spite of my defense of multi-master crews, et cetera, um, I don't want anybody to take that wrong. You know, I love the game. I'm happy with the game the way it is. I'll play it, you know, regardless of if gaining grounds only allows you to have one master in it. You know, I just tend to fall in that camp up front of, I want the maximum flexibility to play and explore. So the, the last little piece, because we talked about dead, dead Man's Hand a good bit, um, James, how do you feel about um, you know people being allowed to use the beta rules for unreleased models in competitive play or not being allowed to use unreleased models? 
Yeah. So, I mean, so I, um, I, I, I've sort of had this discussion. One of my teammates rang me actually while I was in King's Cross Station in the middle of London um, on the way back from a work thing. Um, and I had this conversation sort of on a platform with a lot of people staring at me like I'm a right weirdo. <laughs> um, and I guess where I came down on it was um, I, I think it makes, so, you know, what not having unreleased models does is it, it, it gates off certain masters, particularly in Guild, and, and there are masters actually probably, uh, or keywords, but in a number of factions that sort of borderline become unplayable without their unreleased stuff. Um, and But actually, I can kind of take that or leave that, I think, you know, actually at a balanced perspective with or without the unreleased stuff, um, we're in a good space. I, I think the... I think where it comes down for me is it's it's what this does to the mood of players who've already got things um, and you know, already got models and now half of their crew doesn't work. So it's not the Euripides players who just can't play anything that that worries me. It's the you know it's the various existing masters that are missing very core parts without without these unreleased models. So I, I'm in favour of letting them in, but I, I totally understand. Um, yeah, and letting them in not from a balanced perspective, but from a, uh, a player experience and, and, and not upsetting the player base at what is a relatively delicate time for the game. That being said, um, I, I can respect TOs going the other way. Yeah, and I kind of fall in the other camp. I do, I do think there are some exceptions there. Like you look at something like Nakima, where her new, new um, totem, in M3E is an unreleased model, and I can see the, the need for her to have her totem to be on par with maybe the other masters. My problem stems back to something else. And if, and if I go back for me in terms of my gaming background, you know, 15, 20 years ago as a competitive Warhammer player back then, typically I tended to favor the events that GW ran as opposed to indie events. Because I'm the type of person that when I show up to the table, I want to be able to look at the table and understand what the models are based on what I see. And in, in events that GW ran, you were required to, at least here in the U.S., like their old grand tournaments, you're required to use their models. Models had to represent the appropriate thing. And when you get into areas of allowing people to use unreleased models, then that brings proxies into the equation. And then, sure, it's at the TO's discretion, but I've seen extremes, you know, at either end of that spectrum where you had to make something that looked the closest to what the actual model would be. Vice, you know, back in the old Warhammer days of seeing sheep armies that were supposed to be X, Y, or Z, you know, and you almost needed a, an encyclopedia and an abacus just to know what the heck they were playing. And I don't want that. I want to be able to look at the models, know what the model is, not keep a cheat sheet to explain every model you're using that is not the model on the table. That's totally fair. Uh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely fair. It, it, it's a really good argument. Possibly I've spent way too long alpha testing with uh, Ludo counters glued to uh, tiddlywinks, uh, which we've done a lot of. Um, so I, I kind of I kind of get around that once it's on the board. It's, it's a plain piece to me, but I totally I totally get that argument. And like I say, I think it's, uh, you know, th there are some, like Nikima's Totem, there are actually a good number of things that don't work without their, their unreleased models. But... Like you said, I, I can go either way on it. I think it's it's the, the bad taste in the mouth of the players. Um, you know, the people like McKay, people with, you know, there are a number of people who will have basically whole crews of their own models that don't work now without something that's, to be honest, we already know the rules of. Um, and so with an appropriate proxy, you know, we, we, you know we're 99% sure we know what the rules for those models are going to be. Um, 
I'm in favor of letting people use their toys during this window of release in term, you know, to grow the player base and not offend people unnecessarily. But I, I totally, totally take Steve's point. You know, things need to be clear and visible on the tabletop and people should be playing with appropriate um, models that look like the thing that they're supposed to be. Yeah, I, I, I actually have swung around and just sort of sit on the fence with this one now. I was really, um, I was really disappointed with the decision at first because uh, there's loads of toys that I'm excited about using that that don't have models released yet. But and and for me, it was a case of it's that it's that excitement. It's everyone wants to use their new toys. Actually, those of us that have been testing during the betas have proxies already for them and have been looking forward to using them and are ready to go with them. Um, but on the flip side of that, I also know plenty of people that haven't been playing during the betas and have been waiting for the real game. And actually, whilst we, yes, we could give them the beta rules for all these models, it's it's not it's not fair to expect them to have to play against models that aren't officially mm-hmm. released as well. Um, so from a from a selfish point of view, as as someone who was was beta testing, I would love to be able to use my new toys, but I can understand why the decision generally has been made to not allow them yeah i think uh, james's point about there being a window is, is pretty good um and i think that uh i think we'll have to see um what it's like i mean for me you know i played against a mccabe player recently and you know and they, he brought two hucksters which aren't released but he also brought and i can't think of the henchman's name but there's a uh, another model it's uh in that keyword too larue i think um and, and it got a little bit confusing to Steve's point, which is, you know, all right, which one's the huckster? Which one is that? Um, so I think I fall on, you know, if, if we're going to do it, then um, we, we're going to have to be real good about proxies. And I don't know about you guys, but I prefer the proxy to be a non-weird model. So what, what really screws me up is when you bring, um, you know, a uh, soulstone miner and try to tell me it's an arachnid spider. That screws me up as opposed to bringing, you know, a bones model and telling me that's a weird model. Yeah. And back during the beta, similar to, I, I believe what Jamie and James were saying, I know a number of the people I played with, we would do things like put labels on our models that were proxies for other things. And I think that's all well and good when I'm trying something else at the house, you know, when I'm trying a new crew, when I'm trying a new approach, or when I'm, you know, beta testing something that they haven't made yet so I can provide back feedback. But when I go to a tournament, kind of like painting, you know, I want to see models. I want to see the right models. I want them to be painted. You know, I want to have a good overall experience and anything that can lead to some of those gotcha moments where it's, oh, you know, I didn't realize that was Mm -hmm. X and it did this because it's some other model just exacerbates some of those problems in my mind. No, I agree. All right, gentlemen, let's uh, let's take a quick break. When we get uh, back from the break, we've got a really good question from one of our listeners, Jacob. Um, it's probably going to kind of tie into the therapy session you guys gave me. Uh, he wants to know a little bit about uh, becoming a better player. So we'll be right back. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. 
It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Okay. Um, I think that was a really, really good discussion. And um, I, uh, I had a pretty firm stance on all three of those things. And um, I'm going to have to think about it some more. The one point um, before we move on um, that I thought was very interesting um, among all of them was James's point. I think it was James's or Jamie's point that, um, you know, folk, it, by having the second masters there, it might hide some imbalance elsewhere um, and could be a distraction. So it'll be very interesting to see how things unfold here um, over the next several months. But uh, Jacob, one of our listeners, sent in a question. Um, and Jamie, I'd like you to start off. Hello, Third Floor Wars. This is Jacob from Indianapolis. I first want to give a shout out to everyone in the Malifaux community. I hope everyone is happy and healthy. But here's my question for the expert panel. As of recording this, I have yet to win a, a single game of Malifaux. So what I want to know is, what are the basics that you think every new player should know to uh, get them over the finishing line for a uh, winning game? Thanks in advance for your answer, guys. Keep up the great work. Okay. I mean, a lot of it is going to be points mean prizes. So we talked a lot about strats and schemes, but I think going into M3, it's going to be uh, a bit of it's going to be down to attitude as well. Um, I think anyone who was part of the betas can appreciate the uh, the rage at playing against the gotcha moments in the new M3E crews. Uh, there's a lot of stuff you won't have seen before. There's a lot of stuff that if you don't know it's coming is going to ruin your hobby. But come out swinging, bounce back, play it again and again until you get it, learn it. There's, there is so much to take in. I've played countless games of M3E and I still get surprised by stuff. I still get my toys taken off in turn one and look at the board and go, how did that even happen? And you just need to, to take a moment, take stock, look at your crew, look at what your opponent did to you and think about the answers you've got to it. Um, but if you're starting fresh and, and you're in a position where actually you're, you're, not, you're not winning games or you're not quite getting it yet, pick a keyword, maybe two keywords, but ideally one, quite a flexible keyword. I'd say every faction's got a keyword that is fairly flat, flexible and learn it. Learn what you can do, learn what your weaknesses are and your strengths are, and that'll enable you to go out and play against a variety of things where you are confident about your crew and you can concentrate then on the game around you, the things that people are doing to you and what you need to do to win. Yeah, I would add to that as well. I think you know, picking a keyword's really really key um and, and sort of focusing on that and potentially the thing the thing maybe to do is you know is play a game um and if you don't win kind of look at it um and then and then see if that same opponent will play again um and kind of just reset the same objectives the same you know two chosen masters um and kind of replay so that you're, um, you know, so, so that you sort of give yourself that chance to iterate without a lot of the variables, because there are so many variables in Malifaux that actually um, resetting a few of those and giving yourself the opportunity to to sort of learn from that kind of that repeat 
um, would be good. Ask your opponents, look, did you see any mistakes I made? Because quite often they're more obvious from the other side of the board. Um, and, and if all else fails, just just find someone worse at Malifaux than you um, and stomp them. <laughs> nice. So I, I'd give you four points real quick and maybe a bonus. First, to reiterate and expand on Jamie's point, learn your crew and understand the role of each model. Every model should be able to do something every turn that matters, either scoring, preventing scoring, creating the conditions for an advantageous situation later, but learn your crew and what it does. Second, learn the board. How does the board, the pool, and the train dictate how, where, and when events take place and how can you exploit this to put your opponent in an unfavorable situation or yourself in a favorable situation. That also goes back to the alignment of strategies like we talked about earlier. Third, start looking at the opponent. How does their crew work? What's critical to that um, crew's success? A model, a turn, a sequence of actions. How do you prevent them from accomplishing that? Fourth, like James said, after each game, go back and look. Did you use each piece as intended? If not, why? What could you have done differently? Why did you fail to score? Was it because you didn't commit actions or your opponent prevented you? And if it was on your opponent, what could you have done to mitigate that? And then for the bonus, find the best player in your area. Find somebody that'll go open toga with you and play with them continually. Get them to talk about what they see that you're doing wrong. Get them to talk about their thought process, how they target prioritize, why they're making the decisions that they will. Not necessarily every turn, every action, every model, but starting to understand and see how people think and approach the game will bring all of that together for you. And then like we were talking with you earlier, you're not going to be able to do all of it in one game. So in each game, try to focus on one or two specific things and then stay with those until you've mastered those and they become second nature, and then continue to expand um, the development of your game and your play. Steve, I think that uh, that last piece of advice, um, I think, is a, is a, is a very big one, um, at least from my perspective. Um, you and I have talked, and you, I think you've done a very good job and been very generous in helping me really go in with that mindset. And, you know, I go into a game now with a, with a crew, and I've been working Molly hard lately, but when I put uh, McMorning on the table for the first time, I said, you know, my, my objective obviously I'm going to try to win. Don't get me wrong, but my objective this turn is is to really understand how this poison stuff works and how can I get, how can I make an effective turn one to get the poison where I need it to be? And I want to understand the mechanics of the poison by the time I'm done with this game. And that's helped me focus a lot. Yeah. I I, I jump in off that as well. I think it's that that's, yeah. Really great points from Steve and, and Craig there. And I think the, you know, define define what you want to success out of a game as well. So, you know, to your point about poison, Craig, I think, um, you know, if you're losing every game 4-0, um, and you may not be, you may be, you know, drawing every game, but sort of figure out, okay, well, what, what am I going after this game? And it might not be go for, going from sort of losing 4-0, it might be going to, okay, you know, going to four two. You know, it, it sort of look at focusing on on, on an incremental improvement rather than just the win loss. Um, you know, and the, the final scoreline. I think that that's really important. Yeah, and another thing I do, which um, which is is not going to win you a lot of games, but it's going to progress your play a lot. 
um, I stress test everything and I use casual games to do this. So I, I turn up to a game and I'll put a crew on the table that maybe I'm not as familiar with or the first time I play against a new crew and I will almost forego points in the game, but I will try and engage every model, try and see the weaknesses of it, see what my crew can do, stress test the situations that they can be in, what what different interactions work, what different combos work, and just focus on learning models and learning abilities and combinations rather than trying to score. And then actually when I go into a game that is is more important, maybe a tournament game or even just a game where actually you're more comfortable with your crew or your opponent's crew and you think you can compete in it better, and actually you'll be in a much better standpoint to understand the game and take some of that um, that headspace that you need to use to think about all these things because you're more confident with them and put them into actually how am I winning this game and I think Jamie hit on a key point there and that's when he transitioned from talking about the stress test into applying that to a tournament game because you've got to focus on the objective like the example you gave of of McMorning and looking at the poison and what your first turn looks like what you're trying to accomplish there um, it, it's good to get that familiarity and to establish a rhythm and figure out how this approach works and what you're going to do with it. But don't get distracted by the machine if it doesn't enable the objective of winning. And sometimes you will see people who build crews or build interactions that can do something really cute and gimmicky. And hey, that's really pretty. I want to pet it, but it doesn't score points. And so once you learn the mechanic, make sure the mechanic is building you towards that objective of scoring. Yeah, no. And, and, and thank you for clarifying that, Steve, because that, that is also very, it's, it's so easy in this game to get lost in combos and, you know, it's not war machine where combos win you the game. Um, it's, it is, the game is, is not that linear. Um, and you know, for me learning the poison mechanic was not learning, you know, that a, a set turn or anything like that. Like literally I just wanted to understand, you know, when things happen, like it was like, learn the mechanic is probably the best way to, to put it. Um, but boy, oh boy, it is real easy to get too cute um, in this game and decide wrongly that the objective of this game is going to be is I'm going to you know get these four models to make this one cute thing happen. Um, and that's fine if that's what's fun for you, but um, don't be surprised if that doesn't turn into a winning strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And there are some situations where you can build something that's kind of cute and effective. In in our group chat the other day, we were talking about the, the power crew, and I'd posted some pictures of that game. I played with Karis, Karis and somebody else. So this is a, a US-centric chat. Sorry, guys. Um, but it was a dual master crew with Karis in there, and I had uh, 12 or 14 power markers out. I think 12 power markers out turn one. And yeah, it was kind of cute. It wasn't the most efficient use of some, some of my actions, but it was actually really effective too, because in that game we were playing corrupted idols and there was no way my opponent could get to the idols without going through the pyres. But oftentimes it's not the case. Oftentimes we build these machines or we, or we build these boxes where we can do all these cute interactions that don't have any significant overall influence on the game or affect our ability to score. And that's the thing I would caution people against. Yeah. I mean, that's a really important point. I, I just really wanted to second that and underline that. And, and, you know, I, I've played against way too many crews that spend, you know, their whole 
first turn, messing about in their deployment zone, gaining focus or doing something else um, while I'm off scoring points on the rest of the board. And that's, uh, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, it's something that, you know, to be avoided. Um, and, you know, if you're not progressing and spending your AP in the direction of victory, then, you know, then all the cute combos in your deployment zone um, in the world won't help you. Yeah, and to, to build upon that, I think uh, to use a term that you don't often hear in Malifaux, um, I think tempo is so important in M3E, more, more so than it was in M2E, especially if we look at the rulebook strategies. We've got three of those strategies. You're winning those if you are over the other side of the board before your opponent is. And if you're building a convoluted plan that actually, yes, you know what, may be quite cool if it all goes off, um, and you're losing tempo to it, that's not going to win you the game. You need to be quick off the mark. You need to have a plan and you need to be able to stick to it. And actually, if things get taken out of it, your plan can't fall apart. Yeah, no, I I, I, I think that that, um, it's, that temptation is so strong <laughs> to, to, to want to do that. Um, we've got a good friend of mine, uh, Marcus, the place here locally. Um, he's, he... Part of what he loves about the game is is coming up with that secret tech combo stuff, um, and uh, I, I think he is even starting to realize that um, you know that there's there his love for that is 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 hurting his ability uh, to win. Um, and uh, I've I've noticed in the last couple games uh, that he's played, and one I played with him, that I'm seeing less of him trying to build those uh, uh, Goldberg machines um, to get that one event to uh, knock off. But um, Jamie, I want to uh, ask you kind of a, a similar or uh, along the same vein question. So, you know, you three guys have played a lot of Malifaux. You guys were very active in two. You've been very active all throughout this transition. Um, as we start three, um, I'm, you know, I'm seeing a lot of new players, you know, new potential players, new people showing up. Um, and I want to kind of get a, an idea, Jamie, how you handle um, let's say round one in a tournament, so a competitive environment, and you have got somebody who is really maybe has one or two games under the belt. How do you handle that scenario so that um, you know they we don't lose them as a player? Oh well, if I'm at a tournament, I'm going to crush their hobby, Craig. There's there's no whole part there. <laughs> we know that. That's why I went to you first. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, so you actually, <laughs> um, but I think the important thing there is actually. So we, we need to remember we're in a competitive setting and they're in a competitive setting. So for for the respect of both people, you're going to take it seriously. But there are things you can do to make the game more enjoyable. Um, I think starting with crew selection. Um, there are crews in every faction that are absolutely horrific to play against if you don't know what they're going to do to you. Um, something like Colette, where actually a new player is going to just straight up attack Colette, and that is just absolutely the wrong thing to do. Um, or something like Brewmaster, where you can get stuck in that disgusting aura of his. Um, and it's just about, you don't have to pick one of those. Um, you, there's no point stroking your ego by taking something absolutely filthy. Actually, take a crew and talk to them throughout the game, um, explain what things can do. And actually, when they're looking at the board and they've got options, talk them through the options and be honest about it. If we're looking from the point of actually a really experienced player versus a new player, I don't think it's, it's the question of how you're going to win the game doesn't really come into it. It's actually, um, can we make this a really enjoyable game and a learning experience for both people? Um, and 
there's, there's better ways to do that. And I, my main point is going to be around uh, talking the opponent through options and not taking a crew that's going to hit them with some horrible gotcha moments. And, I, and I'd add to that, uh, you know, great points. And I'd add to that, probably take backs, let them, you know, just like let, let them declare stuff and go, actually, I'm, I'm not sure you want to do that. And here's why. Um, and sort of go, you know, let them kind of where they've done something, obviously, you know, or they're trying to do something that's obviously flawed that, you know, that, you know, that will just result in disaster. You know, there's no harm in pointing that out, particularly with very new players. Um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I think just not letting them, you know, trying to avoid, steer them clear of the massive pitfalls there are in, in any given game. Um, there's only so much you can do, but uh, yeah, I, I think that's certainly a help. Yeah, the tournament question's a little more tricky. If a person is playing in a tournament, then you should expect a basic fundamental understanding of, of the core rules and functions. If it's a one-off game, then it's a whole lot easier a question to answer. You know, And that starts with crew selection, playing something like Jamie said that's a lot more straightforward, maybe even lower on the power curve. Typically, even in a fun game, I don't quote-unquote pull any punches. I'm still going to make what I think are the best decisions turn to turn because that's what will help teach the player um, how to play themselves. You know, but also intend or I also make sure that I ensure they understand how my crew functions, what the tricks are, how they should play against it. And then I want to talk them through their decisions. I'll try to explain why and what I'm doing and encourage them to think through some of the different options available to them when they activate models and help keep them out of traps. This is one of the toughest things to do, I think. I would rather play half a game with a new player and give them a chance to see the full flavor of a game than rush through an entire game that just tables them without giving them an understanding of the possibilities or the things that really makes Malifaux cool and unique. When you put that into a tournament context, it's a little bit different. I'm still going to take that same approach, um, but there's varying degrees of it as well. You know, and, you know, I, I think I can be pretty clear about that without, you know, I don't know, going overboard in that you've got to let them in a tournament, make some of their own mistakes and make some of their own decisions as well. Because at the end of the day, if you are competing, you've got to be able to make through enough turns for you to score your points as well. Yeah. And I, I think to that point, in the casual environment, I think when we're playing casual, um, you know, I, what I tend to do is I'll take, um, you know, I'll, I'll take, uh, you know, significantly weaker crew and probably choose some optimal schemes and then, and then sort of play, play my normal game from there. Um, and that, that sort of, um, so that you're not obviously pulling punches against the opponent, but you've sort of, you've made those decisions up front that will hamstring you enough to kind of pull the game back, um, towards them. You know, that, that's much easier done in a, uh, uh, in, in a casual environment than it, than it is in a competitive environment because I'm always slightly nervous when a opponent goes, oh, I'm new, um, as happens, um, as happened to me today. And then, you know, in a game of corner, you know, in a game of uh, corner corrupted idols, they're still playing Zerada in gremlins with all the Solurids, you know, <laughs> so there's, there's a limit. Um, yeah, there's, there's sort of, there's a limit to how much you can believe your opponent and pull up punches if you don't know them um but uh you know I, I think i think for a casual environment that's a lot easier and at, at tournaments as you know as steve said there's a there's a very definite balance to strike there but you can still make sure your opponent has fun even when they're uh you know even if the game's not going their way 
Yeah, and I, I think to build on that and to, to swing it round to a more casual environment like the other guys have done, um, I've actually been introducing a couple of people to Malifaux recently and we've been playing the Henchman Hardcore M3 rules and those are awesome for introducing new players because actually what you do by removing Masters and some of the other mechanics that um, Henchman Hardcore has uh, or removes from the game is removes a lot of the gotcha moments. It removes a lot of those synergistic combos, which allows you to focus on actually interactions, how the game works, scoring points, how flipping cards work. If we're talking like a really new player, I can't recommend Henchman Hardcore enough as as getting people into it for at least their first sort of handful of games. Yeah, I think Jamie's spot on there. And in a situation where you know it's a new player, then I also don't hesitate at all to rig the pool to deliberately pick a strategy, a deployment, and a set of schemes that will let me walk the player through various aspects of the game, you know, and possibly strengths of the crew keyword or faction that they have indicated they like or that they want to play to give them more of a deeper introduction beyond what they may have got previously. Um, Obviously, that's for a casual game. Uh, going back to James's point about opponents in tournaments, my kind of rule of thumb is if they speak with an English accent, then burn their ships, dump their tea in the harbor and open fire because it might just be part of their deception. <laughs> uh, all right, moving on. <laughs> uh, we have uh, 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 Chris, uh, a listener. Uh, he actually uh, – gave us the question about minimum activations. He actually sent in another really good question. Um, so James, I'd like you to uh, give your thoughts. Staying on the topic of corrupted idols, how often do you find yourself cheating the initiative? And during the game, do you typically spread your crews out or do you bunch up to one half of the table? So I think with I think with corrupted idols, that's probably probably the strategy where the initiative matters the most, um, and it, it is one where yeah, absolutely, um, and particularly where you've won the initiative and your opponent sort of passes, um, then cheating the initiative after you've won um, to, to place the markers, you know, something to get in the habit of. Just because you've won doesn't mean you can't cheat. Um, so that that's that's worth considering, but it is one where having um, Having the initiative is very vital, I think, in Corrupted Idol. So, yeah, I absolutely cheat that one more. Um, in terms of, of splitting the crew, I, I think what you need is, is to be able to cover the ground, certainly. So, yeah, I, I try to I try to spread up along the line. Um, um, but, you know, th- there's always a balance there between between that kind of spread and, 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 and sort of being able to be taken out too easily in a particular space. Yeah, and to build on that, I would say I've had a lot of success in Corrupted Idols um, with both ways of doing it, with spreading out and with uh, focusing on one area. But you you need to look at your schemes before you make that decision. If, you're, if you look at your scheme pool and actually you could achieve all of your schemes whilst staying in a, a one-third of the deployment line, then actually you can absolutely build a crew that's going to be able to get you past tokens or generate past tokens during the game and afford you the ability to dictate where that corrupted idol marker is going to go and then dominate one part of the board and just engineer that corrupted idol marker going there. But you're going to need to be able to score your schemes from there as well. Yeah, I agree with that completely. 
And, you know, in the discussion of splitting versus focusing only on one side, you get two idols on the board before you can score. Since you can't score first turn, though, you can push the idol over first turn. So you don't have to have all the idols to score, just most. But really, the strategy is only one piece of the of the puzzle. Equally important, like we talked about earlier, is the deployment with it. Um, playing idols into standard or wedge doesn't require near the maneuverability or the range of actions or influence that playing into flank or corner requires just because of the physical space between. Um, and so I think you have to look at those things. Also look at the, the type of the train itself, look at the type of crew you're playing against, and then that'll help you make those decisions as you pair that strategy with the schemes that you selected, much like Jamie indicated already. Yeah, Corrupted Idols is a, uh, a strategy that, the, and it, it's a lot deeper than it initially seems to be. And and Jamie, your point about, um, you know, manufacturing where that idol goes, it's not just cheating the initiative that can help decide that. Um, I think your point about pass tokens is one that's very easily overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, guys, we're going to take another break. And when we get back from this break, we're going to take an, another question from a listener. And um, it's going to be focused on really what kind of play styles are more effective. So we'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. Um, yeah, that's really interesting to hear how you guys approach um, uh, corrupted idols. It's a uh, it's a strategy that I think the more you play it, the deeper uh, it gets, um, and it, it's got a lot more um, randomness to it initially when you look at it. And sometimes when you lose a corrupted idols game, you're like, "Well, the marker didn't get where I want." But I thought Jamie um, really made a good point about um, focusing on potentially engineering where that is, and that can go beyond just. Uh, just what you cheat. So another one of our listeners, Michael's uh, got a question that he sent in and uh, James, I'd like to know what your thoughts are. Hey, I was wondering for all of the guys, what are your preferred play styles and what would you believe is the more competitive keyword styles in the meta as far as like more mobile keywords tend to be stronger or more very killy crews. What are y'all's preferred ones? What do you normally win with? What do you think would kind of top out the meta? Maybe it'd be the summoning master of the factions. Do y'all think that they'd be the better ones? Maybe the poison master. Just want to know what y'all's opinions were. Love the podcast. 
Well, as an arcanist, I can, I can to be very, very clear that the Poison Master is not, um, and Poison is not a play style uh, <laughs> that I prefer. But uh, no, um, I, I think for me, and, and you know, I, I'm naturally a defensive and evasive player, so I, I tend to avoid combat and tend to go after my points um, because it's very easy to spend AP kind of going into the into the enemy. So I, I tend I. I tend to prefer a mobile uh, defensive play style, but that, that is something that's very much my play style. I think it varies player to player. One thing I, I will say um, is I don't see Killy as being a play style, um, even almost to a certain extent in Reckoning. Um, I, I think it's a scale. And one of the things you should do is recognize whether one of you will be the Killy crew in any game, um, depending on who's brought the most combat to the game. So... I tend to view one of you will be killing and one of you will be evading. Um, and that's a scale. And depending on crew selection, you'll place yourself somewhere on that scale. And if you're more killing than your opponent, you're the killy crew. And if you're less, then you're the evasive crew. And it's kind of playing towards that for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, to counter what James said, I'm actually a really aggressive player. Um, I play a really aggressive play style. And that's not to be confused with killing, although that is generally what the way I go. Um, but it's an aggressive positioning game. Um, it's controlling the tempo of play. It's forcing you to make bad decisions. And a, a lot of crews can get into that. But um, a, what will be good for a player will generally come down to their what play style they are comfortable with. We've had in the UK people at the top of the game who have been aggressive players, people at the top of the game who have been defensive players. And it's it's down to to you and your style and you build crews that work with that and are effective in that to to score your points and win your games yeah i I agree with that though much like james i always value mobilities in my crews um, as it lets you dictate the terms of the engagement determine where the action is going to happen and this is true no matter what kind of crew you're playing if you want to want to interact or play an avoidance crew, then mobility can facilitate this. If you want to play more of a kill first scheme lighter, a la guild and M2E, the mobility can let you pick your targets with surgical precision and determine when you're going to attack those. With any type of style or any approach you you take, um, the way I look at it is you want to emphasize that as much as you can and capitalize off of any advantage that you have over your opponent, whether it's mobility, combat power, control, disruption, etc. The more that you can emphasize whatever the advantage your crew has over the other crew, the better you can set up situations or positions throughout the game of relative advantage where you can exploit that capability your crew has or the advantage that you have in order to allow you to execute your game plan disrupt their crew and score your points. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, I want to emphasize that I think actually any play style can win games of M3 and any play style could be at the top of your meta. But I think if there's one thing we we three seem to agree on is that mobility works, whether you're playing that evasive game uh, like James is playing, the positioning game that Steve was talking about, or my aggressive ball positioning play that I'm playing, that mobility is really, really important, um, especially when you're looking at the strategies and the schemes that we have currently in M3. Yeah, because I think we've got, um, what, three strategies now that, that just primarily focus on movement and then that ability. Um, and, and one of the reasons I, I sort of favour mobility um, over, over anything 
you know, over, over a lot of play styles is, um, you know, you, you don't win a game with Malifaux by flipping cards and generally movement ability, you know, sort of introducing that variant. So generally movement abilities are, you know, are easier to get off. They tend to not be opposed. So it tends to give you that freedom to act without your opponent's ability to disrupt it as much, which, which is vital. So I, I tend, that's one of the reasons I tend to go that way. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And the other piece there is that in any of these strategies, even if it's a strategy that doesn't as obviously require maneuver or mobility, the key for me is mobility allows you to pick the time and place of the interactions, not interactions as in interact the Malifaux, you know, um, action but the interactions as in the engagement between your models and theirs and mobility facilitates that and allows you to pick the time and place where you have the greatest advantage in the exchange, no matter what approach you're playing. Yeah. I'll do a quick plug um, for a previous episode. Um, Ray spent a lot of time kind of um, rating every keyword based off of several factors, including damage output and mobility. Um, so for those of you that haven't seen, uh, listen to the uh, the Malifaux Matchmaker episode um, from several weeks ago. That might be worth listening to. Um, and I I am in the same uh, boat you guys are. Um, I think mobility does not only everything you guys talked about, but the other thing mobility does if you're uh, like me and make mistakes, it allows you to recover easier um, from mistakes. Um, and uh, I find that to be very, very helpful. I want to talk real quick... Um, gentlemen, about um, a kind of a new mechanic in the game, uh, which is pass tokens. And, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but I'd be curious to know uh, for you, James, uh, how often um, are you thinking about pass tokens and activations when you're building? And I'd also like to get a sense of how you evaluate whether you should be using a pass token uh, to pass an activation or not. Uh, so I tend, to, I, I tend to look at pass tokens um, relatively little during build. I, th- I think generally I try and fit in what I can fit in and, and just try to aim you know, in, inside um, sort of, uh, you know, enough models to do the job um, to, to a point we've already talked about. I think in, in turn, I think um, when to hold pass tokens and when to use pass tokens is, you know, is an art that's still developing um, in M3, but certainly in, in some game types, um, particularly in Reckoning, um, and idols actually access those pass tokens to what Jamie was talking about earlier is is you know you know is really important. So I think there's something we're all still exploring, and getting to grips with. Yeah, agreed. I think generally it seems to be the case that pass tokens in a non-corrupted idols game are most useful. Turn one uh, for that ability to keep those activations even. Um, and in the later turns, you, you generally can't afford, certainly at the start of the turn, to be passing activations. Uh, you might find at the end of the turn, if you've got an odd model left and, and they're not, in, it's not in a position where it's threatened, you can afford to spend a pass token. Um, but it is, as James said, it's still a learning experience. And actually, there's crews that can manipulate pass tokens in different ways and use them for different things. Yeah, absolutely. Quality of early activations or actions is one of the big things that determines it for me. And balancing this against the criticality of the initiative, like Jamie mentioned for Corrupted Idols, when I look at it, I try to assess what's the criticality of the activations that are going to occur early in the turn. Are there things I have to be able to react to? 
or are there things I have to see occur or situations present before I can activate key models? Um, if not, then I like to hold them to guarantee the choice. But there's not really that that easy, a hard and clear rule as it's going to change based on the individual circumstance of each turn and each action as the game progresses. You know, often, though, if you're getting um, pass tokens, unless they're being generated by chaff models, you can't just afford to set back, especially in the later turns, like Jamie said, after turn one, and burn out your own models and give the opponent opponent multiple unopposed activations back to back. Um, I don't play it with a hard and fast rule. I try to look at if I activate early, can I deny my opponent key actions? I try to balance that against do I need to hold certain models to later in the turn to answer either key threats or key situations or their ability to score? And then how much greater is my need to dictate or guarantee the initiative next turn and what that's going to allow me to do both this turn and create the conditions for the next activation on the following turn. Uh, And to just quickly build off what you just said, Steve, I think one of the skills that I'm working on the most, and I'm probably not alone in this, is the ability to uh, correctly assess the threats from activation to activation. Um, And I think uh, we could probably do a whole podcast on that because um, that is something that I think is critical um, for getting better at the game. And that is being able to say, um, you know, this is, this is, this is, this needs to happen right now, or this needs, this can wait till later. And, you know, not even talking about passing or not passing, but determining your activation order. That's the Holy Grail of Malifaux. <laughs> All right. So we've got uh, a really good question from one of our listeners, Alexander. Um, and Steve, I'd be anxious for you to answer, uh, or at least start the conversation. Hello, Craig. So here is my question. So there's been like um, an effort with a new edition so that people try to not use the same models across all crews. But still, I'm listening to your podcast and, for instance, uh, the Razors uh, seems all to use uh, Archie and Manos. I don't know, you see Soulsoul Miners with like any Arcanist crew. So I was wondering whether... The new edition was really the death of the dream teams. What do you think? So I don't think the answer is completely clear yet. I do think that we have definitely shifted away from 70 to 80% of each crew per faction being the same or virtually the same for almost every master in the faction. Um, In late second edition especially, there were a number of factions where for a given master's crew, you would have 70 to 80% of the crew might be identical no matter what master they were playing. I don't think the threshold's that high for M3E, but I do think there are some clear picks in each faction, both in terms of versatile models or even out of keyword picks that can mitigate concerns or weaknesses across multiple keywords or provide specific key capabilities that are valued or needed based on what the current pool of strategies and schemes are. While I don't think you're going to see the full all-star or or dream team crews, I do think that in each crew, 
or in each faction rather, there are several models that are standout models that are the most efficient at what they do for the points that you will see across a number of crews for sure. Yep, I, I agree with Steve. I think um, I think I've heard the term actually used by Steve of super friends, uh, which is uh, where you you do have these models that are just excellent choices for their points. But I think you don't you can't look past keyword synergy as well. Um, and I think the the addition of uh, keyword abilities is going to help keep that under control um, because there there is a lot of synergy within keywords which we didn't have a lot of in M2E and I think that makes a big difference to how we're going to build our crews. Um, I definitely think we've seen the, the, the death of all-star crews but there will be um, certain models that you see fairly often, things like Big Brain Bryn in... Uh, Gremlins or Serena Bowman in Neverborn because they plug a gap or bring something to a crew that is useful in loads of different situations. Yeah, and uh, sort of, I'll probably echo what the guys have said around that. Um, you know, all very good points. I think the probably this the, the, the thing for me is the there isn't a what M3E does is it encourages um, crew building from inside your keyword, so crews are more in theme. The all-star or all-comers list that, that you sort of you saw a lot in M2E was more of a function of, of kind of game balance um, and power level of individual things within the faction. So while paying an extra soulstone out of keyword will do that to a, you know will alleviate that to a certain extent. It will be a function of game balance and having sets of objectives that emphasize very different things. Um, so to kind of encourage players to build different crews in different ways so i think that's um you know that, that's that's probably where we're going to end up but i think it's much more a function of overall game health and right now the game looks healthy than it is um going to be solved by the one silver bullet of, of, of kind of keyword hiring yeah and that and that's an excellent point james and to follow up on what both you and jamie have already said the keyword synergies definitely influence crew building but more than anything, it was just the rebalancing of everything, which made almost all the choices much more viable um, in terms of what they brought to the table, kind of that game health state that, that James just mentioned. When, when you look at, at the choices that are out there now, um, like the Twins and Malifaux, as your questioner mentioned, to me, that's much more a, like, like Jamie said, that's much more a case of trends and similar capabilities that are needed for the current set of, of strategies and schemes that as you start seeing things like gaining grounds, as you see new strategies, as you see new schemes, there's going to be a shifting process there. But I think it's the natural state of any game that people are going to look within their keyword. They're going to look at the strategy. They're going to look at what are the tools that I need to accomplish the strategy and schemes. And if there is a more efficient or effective way of doing it outside of the keyword, then it's worth paying the tax to do so. And if there's a certain model or series of models in your faction, like maybe Cassandra and Arcanist or the Soulstone Miners or the Twins and Rezzers or, or whatever model based on what faction you play is, then if it can do it much more efficiently or even slightly more efficiently than a model in my keyword, 
And it's a model that I've used enough times that I'm comfortable with how it functions and how I'm going to employ it. Then you're always going to see people reach for some of those tools instead of just playing purely in keyword, except for those masters where the synergies are really that important to the cruise operation. Yeah, I think Steve just hit the nail on the head for me as well there when talking about models people are comfortable with. Um, the models like Archie as an example that uh, that was used is a really simple to use model who is very good for his soulstone cost. And it's easy when you're learning a new game to, to take a model you're comfortable with um, and you know what it does. It's easy to use and it's good at what it does. Um, and we're still at the very early stages of this game. So it's, it's not surprising that people are taking these good uh, point sufficient models um quite often while they're still learning what they're doing and getting comfortable with other things and other combos and synergies that they may have in their keywords yeah and 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 to jump off from from jamie's point there yeah you know i found myself um sort of i I started there were were some versatile choices in arcanist i was taking every single game um as i was kind of getting up to speed um and the more i'm playing the the more i'm finding actually i'm kind of relying on those less and less Um, and some of that is your ability to kind of how many models can I learn at once? Um, and, you know, Malifaux has always been a game of, of kind of understanding and kind of knowledge. So knowing your own stuff backwards is really helpful. So playing from a smaller pool actually helps you quite a bit. So I'm a big believer in kind of trying to play from a relatively small pool of models, which probably leads me into playing, you know, kind of more models out keyword and more more sort of standardized stuff. But as I'm, as I'm getting more experience with M3, I'm finding myself diversifying more and more. So I expect that's something... Um, we'll always see imbalance as we go through, but I expect that to probably die down a bit, um, as Jamie was saying. Yeah, I think, you know, bottom line is, is that it's way too early to make that call. Um, and I think you, the point that you made, James, is, you know, and Jamie they kicked it off, which is, you know, people are people are just learning these models and we're not just learning how to play them. So we gravitate to what we know how to play, but we're just learning how to, to play against them. Um, and, you know, who knows? We might have a whole new set of strategies and schemes come gaining grounds 2020, um, which, you know, you could have Archie is great right now um, in a lot of things. And then suddenly, you know, everything shifts um, when that thing goes. So I think I think it's way too early to make a call on that, except for one thing. And Kyle, if you're listening, Matt, if you're listening, turn the volume up. Soulstone miners are filthy. They need to be nerfed and something needs to be done about it. Here, here. And those uh, spiders as well. The versatile spiders. Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> By nerf, Craig means an increase in willpower and maybe an extra yeah. point of movement. I'm going to move both, mute both James and Steve. They have no, they have no, the Jamie's with me on this and that, uh, that just needs to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> a discount if you take them in pairs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, but actually, that kind of leads me into something uh, that I kind of want to use to wrap things up, guys. Um, and so we'll start with you, Steve. Um, I, wanted, I want you to pull out your crystal ball. Um, and, uh, you know, there's things that probably concern you right now. But if you were to guess um, what you could see as potential real problems a year from now. So we've, we, M3 is a year old and um, any game is going to have problems at, you know, by the end of its first year. Um, what do you predict could be the potential problems that we're facing uh, with third edition a year from now? This is a point I'd really like to use a pass token, but I'll go ahead and uh, dive in here. <laughs> um, there, there's really not 
too much I'm concerned about. If there's anything, um, it, it would probably be stagnation. And I'll, I'll take the roundabout way of getting there. Uh, the reason I'm not too concerned is I was a, you know, a late adopter of Malifaux anyway, you know, and I had a chance to see in second edition how they worked the errata, where they would do point tweaks, where they would come back and relook at things that, that there was a significant perception were out of balance and needed to be retooled. So from the big perspective, I'm less concerned about individual models or the power level of individual models because those are easy fixes for them to tweak a point here and there or reword something or change an ability on a model um, to either boost it or slightly lower it as required. The, The bigger issue for me is where the beta ended, there were still a few of the crews that felt like they needed help to me um, that weren't as finely tuned or, or refined or on balance with some of the other crews. Um, I think across each faction, you can point out a number of crews that there's a lot of synergy. The models are really polished. Everything works well together. You know, they may have some weaknesses, but that's fine. It's part of the paper, rock, scissors. Um, aspect of the game as you look at those and you look to exploit them and how to mitigate them, et cetera. Um, but there were definitely a couple crews that had some pretty significant changes at different points through the playtest process that when we ended still felt like they needed a lot of help. Um, when I look at a keyword and, you know, I play every faction except Bayou, um, which is probably part of the reason I don't talk with an English accent um, and wind up at the top end of the table. Um, but when, when I look at, at all these different factions and then I look at, you know, a particular faction, I'll just use Red Chapel as an example, you know, and I pick up Seamus and I'm looking through his crew and over and over and over for every strategy that's in the book, almost regardless of the scheme pool, I find myself building crews where almost 50% of the models are either out of keyword or versatile because the models in that keyword just don't stack up to the other choices, even if I'm paying the keyword tax. Um, So with that being the case, and I know I went on way too long and I need to give the other guys a chance here. um, I think within a few of the factions, there is some risk of a little bit of stagnation because there are a few of the crews that I I would almost say need a little bit of a touch up um, and a little bit of a polishing on to bring them up to the level that the other crews are so that you can put them into that paper, rock, scissors rotation um, where everything's viable in the right pool against the right opponent in the right game. So, yeah, and I, I, I echo a lot of what Steve said. I think probably his his concern probably mirrors mine and probably leads me into a hope. So my, my kind of concern probably is around the number of um, – number of models already in existence and I, I i was i was sort of quite surprised with third edition where it didn't take the opportunity to not dead man ha- dead man hand more stuff but kind of go well arcanists have three or four different units which are basically a, a scraggly bloke with a mechanical limb why don't we make all of those one model now um and i'm kind of surprised they didn't do that and it, so it leaves a lot of stuff in the range and a lot of stuff on shelves and i know they'd, they'd take some action to kind of reduce that but it's still there's still a lot of stuff out there. Um, and my kind of hope linked to sort of Steve's concern is that what, what we do 
going forward is what I'd like to see is rather than them sort of add loads and loads of new stuff, I'd like them to maybe every year take two masters or two keywords in each faction and kind of redo them completely mm-hmm. um, as an approach. So, you know, maybe pick the, the two best, you know, the, you know, if, if, you know, if one's overpowered, bring it down that way. If, if something's underpowered in each faction, bring it up um, and kind of, if they, if they were to kind of on a, you know, on a, on an annual basis, kind of cycle that way rather than just adding, you know, and re-sculpt the models, do new stuff at that, that point um, to kind of drive that angle of it. I'd rather see that than, um, we, we all get an extra master, um, you know, in a year or two. I, I think that that'd be, be my view on it, but I, I'm sure there are other commercial imperatives, but that, that'd probably be my concern and my hope. Yeah, I have to agree. I don't think there's a lot of room for that many new models. Um, and I think there was some chat about it during the beta, but I think a much better way to go is alternate play styles and alternate crew boxes of models we already have, mm-hmm. um, rather than just loads of new models that add loads of new options that you can take with existing stuff. Um, but I think um, I'm going to throw it out there because because I've got to and I'm hanging my hat on it that I, I genuinely think if it's not uh, something that's dealt with in Gaining Grounds that Dual Masters will be a thing that is a problem in a year's time, but we will see. Um, also, I just want to say that I think we're it, there are models that it's really easy to say are ahead of the curve at the moment but we're still in the really really early stages of it even even in the uk where we've had quite a few events and seen some things that are perceived as better than others um and there is a lot of calling things broken and saying things are, are better than others but actually ultimately it's it we, the meta is still developing not we haven't seen everything that everyone can do um not everyone knows their crew the same way that they did before or, or has found all the different things that everything can do. And it's, it's really, really early to make a call on that. There is inevitably going to be stuff that is better than other things. Um, as long as we end in a overall balanced place, that's good. I mean, you only need to look at the level of playtesting done in the beta to see that some things were tested more than others. And I think that comes across when you look at rules that, were adjusted in some factions and then left the same in others, maybe where they weren't play tested as heavily for a similar for a similar rule. Um, but ultimately, it's it's going to come down to we, we we won't know just yet. Uh, it's uh, there's it's it's easy to cry broken at the moment the first time you play something, but I, I would I would implore everyone to go and play it another couple of times before you make a judgment call on it because it is. M3, if if nothing else, is full of gotcha moments and and situations where if you don't know what's coming at you, it's going to hurt you. Yeah, and you know, I, I kind of to, to Jamie's point, you know, I, I think you know around everything kind of looks broken. Um, I, I think that's that's probably a statement of where the balance is, and you know, to, to kind of my kind of proofing the pudding with that is always you know looking at one of my teammates who who sort of. Every week it seems, you know, oh, I found this and it's really, really broken. And he takes it to an event and maybe it doesn't do as well as he'd hoped. And he's like, right, I'm on to the next thing. And, you know, he said every week he's got something else that's, that's utterly, utterly mad. I think he's three different factions in now, um, sort of leaping to the next thing that looks uh, that looks really good. And, you know, everything out there feels, you know, feels really good to play right now. So I, I suspect we'll see, uh, you know, we'll see plenty of, uh, you know, we'll see plenty of more things called broken before we get to a point that anything needs errata. I, I think right now we're in a really good space. And I think that's the beauty of the game. And it goes back to that overall sense of balance. L- like both of you guys have said, 
you know, there's a number of things people see that the first time they see it, they just have a crazy reaction to. But that's just part of the balance because, you know, one crew may have a problem with this, whereas for another crew, there's no problem at all. I think the game's in a really good spot. You know, I do acknowledge the concern from across the pond about the dual masters, and we'll see what gaining grounds brings. But I highly encourage people, like everyone on here has said, don't let one interaction with a model or something the first time you've seen it lead you to make an overall judgment about the game. For everything out there, no matter how tough that crew seems, no matter how crazy that ability seems, like, for example, Masaki's ability to just cram Severe's back into her deck or big, big brain Brin's deck manipulation, etc. You know, for every one of those tricks out there, your own faction, your own crew has your own trick that you can exploit and you can use to counter theirs just as well. Yeah, I mean, we keep, I, an analogy I keep using in our, our uh, quote-unquote big M3E group for the UK is that Everything is broken in Malifaux Third Edition, which means nothing is broken really, um, and it's it is it is just that it is everything is a lot more extreme than it was in M two E. There are abilities that if you put it in M two E, it would be straight up the most broken thing in the game. But actually, in the context of M three E, that's not the case because for by your side in Rezzers, you've got Masaki popping out of shadow markers or or the soulstone miners unburying and and generating soulstones. There's just different things in different factions. And it's easy to to look at things and go, whoa, that is broken. That is the most broken thing that needs adjusting. And actually there's everything is just more extreme. It's a it's a different game. But still feels like Malifaux. Yep. I could not agree more. Um and it um even for those of us that were playing all through beta, I will argue that we're still figuring out our own factions, let alone whether other factions are underpowered or overpowered. Um, and it, um, I love that phrasing, Jamie, because the first time you go up against any master in 3E, they are just going to appear to be absolutely bonkers. Um, but the second or third time you play them, uh, you, you'll have a, a different perspective on it. Um, so it does, uh, even though I joke about nerfing some Arcanist models, um, I think, I think time will tell. Um, and if anybody's listening and knows how to deal with those two models, just, uh, shoot me a, uh, email. It'll make me really happy. <laughs> well, well, if you want to, um, if you want to deal with anything in the game, uh, according to the, to the UK group that you need to do, you need to just start playing 10 thunders cause they are hashtag untested filth. <laughs> a little, uh, a little call out for Alex Drake there. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, if anybody's going to find the filth, it'll be Alex. Right? You're right. <laughs> That's great. Well, gentlemen, I do appreciate it. Um, just so everybody knows, we've got a. Uh, we've got episodes um, coming out from uh, Steve. Uh, he's got some Yan Lo love um, coming out in a couple weeks. And then, uh, Jamie, we've got um, Karai uh, episode coming out soon. And I've got to uh, corner James to get another episode, a deep dive out of him. Um, gentlemen, I want to do this again. I think that um, I think there was a lot, uh, a lot covered here. Uh, for those of you that are listening, I highly recommend listening to this twice um, because I really think that there was a lot of really uh, interesting things covered that you may have missed the first time. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, guys, I appreciate it. I hope that uh, we'll be talking again soon. 
Uh, uh, so last but not least, Steve, if people want to, uh, get some more information out of you, do you have anything you want to plug? Actually, I do. I don't have my own podcast tournament or event, um, but you always ask your guests that, and I never have anything to say. So I thought about it in advance this time, and I wanted to hat tip my plug to someone else's event. If you haven't been there before, I highly recommend the Las Vegas Open out in Las Vegas. Chrissy, Derek, and Doug run an amazing event with lots of great people. It's normally a three-day event, three days of awesome gaming that has a day of fun events like henchman hardcore, team events, enforcer brawls, etc., and then a two-day more serious um, gaming tournament. This year it was an M2E farewell on Saturday and an M3 beta on Sunday. I think next year, January, February timeframe, Friday's a fun day, and then a two-day grand tournament event on Saturday and Sunday. Plus, it's Vegas, so it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> yeah, Steve, that's that's on my list. Um, I had a chance to actually meet uh, uh, Chrissy um, at uh, CCM last year, um, and uh, we, we made very fast friends, and uh, I'm a big fan of Vegas, so I've got to make it out there. How about you, Jamie? Do you have a podcast that you're someday going to record and want to plug? <laughs> I'm not going to um, I'm not going to shoot myself in the foot by plugging a podcast that may or may not ever be recorded. <laughs> Although if we're going to record it, it's going to be after Scottish GT because that is next weekend. So wait and see. Uh, that might be coming. Um, but I will go ahead and plug the UK Nationals, which is coming up in November. We normally see quite a big international crowd come over for that. Um, it's the sign ups are building all the time. It's looking like it's going to be quite a big event. It can host. Uh, over 100 people it's, it's got the potential to be massive um, but if anyone is thinking of coming get signed up to it because the UK Nationals is a grueling seven rounds of Malifaux it is an awesome event it is I've it is the, the highlight of the Malifaux calendar in the UK I, I'll argue Jamie at least until uh, uh, we at Third Floor Wars has a chance to get this Masters thing uh, fully up and running this year I'll argue I think it's the, the coolest event period in the world for Malifaux I think that what what you, the way you guys build up to it, uh, the way it's covered. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm excited just to to, wa- to watch the results round by round, and very envious of you guys. Yeah, and we've we've started an age of uh, live streaming stuff now as well. I know the Scottish guys live stream stuff, and I'm sure they will be for nationals again. Um, so there will be coverage. It's just it's just awesome seeing that many people. It's I don't know if it still is, but it certainly has been in the past the biggest Malifaux event in the world. Um, it's just it's just such an atmosphere. How about you, James? Uh, so no, no, it's my own to plug, but I'm, I'm going to plug my local FLGS. They've just moved to um, new larger premises that are brilliant. They're air conditioned, which is amazing in the UK. Um, so yeah. Uh, just plug for Leodis Games in Leeds. They're, uh, you know, if you're looking to buy Malifaux in the UK, they're brilliant. Um, and, and, you know, if you're in the Leeds area, you want to go play, they're great. Um, and I'd also just add a plug for Heartfo, um, which is in the Ada British Heart Foundation. It's happening in August, at the end of August in York. Um, if you can make it along to that, that's really good. And, uh, you know, um, all in aid of a really good cause. All right. Well, guys, I do appreciate it. And like I said, um, everybody stay tuned uh, on the podcast because we're going to be seeing episodes where uh, these guys share even more knowledge. And then I'm going to talk them into doing another one of these roundtables because I thought this was uh, this was excellent. Take care, everybody. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and write a review on this podcast so we can find more people almost as cool as you are. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube by searching for Third Floor Wars. That's T-H-I-R-D. We'll catch you next time on the Third Floor.